I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith, if service, in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honour. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil but give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If someone were to ask you, how's the worship at Grace Church Dundee? What would you say? Would it be something along the lines of, well, we have some excellent musicians in the band like Kev and Richard? And we have some very talented singers like Karis and Big Ben Small. Really is one of the best names ever. And when it comes to the songs themselves, well, we sing a pretty good mix of modern ones and the classics. Now, if we just leave that question open as we look together at Romans 12, 1 to 21, 
hopefully we'll see what answers there are in the text on this matter of our worship. But before we get into Romans 12, we need to quickly step back and survey the landscape of the book so far. There are three main sections or subjects in the letter. Sin, salvation, service. Or perhaps better still, guilt, grace, and gratitude. From chapter 1 to 320, we learn about our sin or guilt. From chapter 321 to the end of chapter 11, we see our salvation and God's grace. And then from chapter 12 to the end, it then deals with our service or gratitude. And the order that they're arranged in is important because first of all, our guilt requires God's grace and then that grace leads to gratitude. It's never the other way around. God's grace always leads to our gratitude. But our gratitude never produces God's grace. So we're beginning this new gratitude section of Paul's letter to the Romans, beginning here in chapter 12. And this morning, rather than examining each verse in detail, a bit like examining the bark on every tree in the wood, We'll be taking more of a drone's eye view of the entire forest, as it were. And this way, we'll try to see better Paul's whole flow of thought as to what really is our spiritual worship. So firstly then, here we are to worship as living sacrifices. So Paul begins this new section with an appeal, a gentle command. I appeal to you, therefore, he says in verse 1. And a therefore always points us back to what came before. So because of all that came before, there in Romans 1 to 11, we need to do something. And all that came before, he sums up in that one little phrase, the mercies of God. So as we keep all those many mercies in view, as we remember all of that sheer grace that saved us to the nth degree, therefore, Paul now urges us to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And this presenting our bodies to God, Paul calls our spiritual worship, your spiritual worship. So your spiritual or true worship is to present to God your body as a living sacrifice. But what does that mean? Because it sounds kind of scary. 
Well, it might help if we see what unredeemed people offer up their bodies to in contrast to this spiritual worship. Back in Romans 3, verse 3, Paul says that they present each part for unspiritual purposes. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And in Romans 6.13, he says to believers, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So this doesn't just mean cranking up the Christian contemporary music on your headphones or even blasting out the a cappella psalm singing. It's presenting your whole body in worship before God. This is your spiritual worship or your reasonable service, New King James. It's your logical worship, in other words, in view of God's mercies. And so we offer every part of ourselves to God. As John Stott put it, then our feet will walk in his paths, our lips will speak truth and spread the gospel, our tongues will bring healing, our hands will lift up those who have fallen, our arms will embrace the lonely and the unloved, our ears will listen to the cries of the distressed, and our eyes will look humbly and patiently towards God. Now, Jesus presented his body as an atoning sacrifice once for all to pay for our sins. We, however, present our bodies as living sacrifices and therefore not once for all, but constantly in gratitude. And we do so for as long as we're living, for as long as we're alive. And these are sacrifices of gratitude correspond to the thanksgiving sacrifices in the Old Testament. And Leviticus 7 where in verse 12, the oil was poured out on all various kinds of bread, which were then presented as a thanksgiving, as thanksgiving sacrifices. And so in our thanksgiving then, we now present our whole selves to God in worship. And in our daily worship, we are not to be conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And not being conformed to this world doesn't mean you have to give up your Netflix account. 
I mean, you can if you want to save money, for example. But watching TV is not what worldliness is or what being conformed to this world is. The pattern of this world, NIV, that Paul is talking about is really the world's way of thinking. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the mindset of this world, the worldly way of thinking, is self-righteousness. Affirm me in my orientations. Affirm me in my choices. Affirm me in my sins, in other words. Because under this self-righteous thinking, the world's claim is that whatever I do is right. Not what God says is right. But in your worship, don't be conformed to this this worldly mindset. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by refreshing your mind in the word. So by the work of the Holy Spirit then, through the word of God, you will renew your mind. And then right actions will follow right thinking. And you can bring this renewed mindset to the TV shows that you choose to view. And you will see through any wrong worldview in those programs. And you will not fall for this world's mindset of self-righteousness. And as you put the word of God through rigorous testing, verse 2, you will grow wise to the will of God. You really want to know what God's will is? His good, pleasing, and perfect will for your worship? Then read Romans chapters 12 to 15. And stick around for the rest of the Roman series at Grace, if you can. Now that's just two verses, folks. So we've got to pick up the pace here if we're going to cover all 21. So secondly then, here we are to worship with lowly service. And here Paul says... You're to think of yourself with sober judgment and not think of yourself more highly than you ought. In other words, don't think the world should revolve around you. Because that will make that will only make you miserable anyway. Especially when others don't seem to agree that everything should actually revolve around you. 
We're just to think of ourselves soberly, accurately, sensibly. Because each of us are equally precious to God. According to the measure of faith God has assigned. And that measure of faith is the gospel. That faith measuring stick says that we're all equally righteous in Christ. But being equally righteous doesn't just make us behave like clones. Because we all have different gifts, verse 6. We all have different strengths and weaknesses. And your strengths will often vary wildly from your neighbor's ones. I don't think it's helpful to get too fixated on what your gift is. As if there's just the one. That one gift to rule them all. You know, I once heard of a guy who said to a girl in church who was wiping down tables after coffee, that's your gift. Wow. That's all she was good at. I can tell you she was good at many things as well as wiping tables. And because we're all so different means that you can't be hard on anyone else for not sharing the same gifts or strengths that you have. Just like you wouldn't want to be thought less of for having different weaknesses or non-gifts from anyone else. And no one will ever be omnicompetent not even the full-time pastor who's somehow, sometimes, expected to be. And no one is omnicompetent, of course, by design. Because we're all of us designed to operate together as a body by an omnicompetent God. Or to put it another way, God has intentionally designed you as a unique item of designer clothing. And that item designed to only truly function properly as part of a great designer wardrobe. So says Paul in verse 6, someone's strength may be prophesying or giving anointed utterances. Someone else's will be in doing practical service, diakonia in the original. And so some will be deacons. Some will be great at admin. Some will actually thrive in group projects. And then someone else's strength might be teaching. And for some this will especially in small group settings like our connect groups for some with kids or teens 
Some will be more comfortable in one-on-ones. Then someone else's strength will be exhorting or encouraging, literally coming alongside others. So some will be the warmest kind of welcomers. Some will give the best hugs or hearty handshakes. And some will be extremely generous givers. Someone else will have those kind of inspirational leadership qualities, all those visionary types and five-year planners. And then someone else's strength will be mercy ministries, like getting involved with CAP, for example. And some will be especially gifted at working to help the poor and frail among us. And in all these things, we're not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. But there should be no false humility either. Don't say, I'm no good at anything. Because that's not true. That's not what the Bible says about you. And your part to play in the body of Christ. The body of Christ would only walk that wee bit more lopsided, as it were, without you and your gifts. But if your best way to bless our worship in the church doesn't jump out at you there, it's not meant to be an exhaustive list by any means. I mean, Paul never even mentioned the musicians, the singers. So these are only a few examples of how we can serve the church. And in them all, we're always to be characterized by humility and cheerfulness, with diligence and so on. So thirdly then, here we are to worship loving saints and slanderers. So let love be genuine, says Paul. In other words, take an interest in each other's welfare. Don't fake an interest in each other's welfare. And so we need to ask the Holy Spirit then, to make our love more real as we look to how real God's love is for us, for others. So I'm not being mushy or sentimental here, but I do say with a sincere heart that I love each and every one of you with a warm heart of Christ. At the same time, it's a love that's deeply flawed because of the old nature that remains in all of us. But it is a love that wants the absolute best for you, every one of you, to know more of the love of Christ 
and know more of a love for each other. And I pray that this love only becomes more and more genuine. And that your love for each other becomes all the more genuine. And I have great hope that it will. Because it's not really me. And it's not really you. It's Christ within me. It's Christ within you. And the transformation that is granted us as a gift by the Holy Spirit. And so the rest of verses 9 to 16 really just puts some more meat on love's bones. It gives the practical outworkings of what genuine love looks like towards each other in the church. And if our love for each other is in line with God's will, then we will also hate something too. Because the opposite of love is not hate, but indifference. So we will abhor what God calls evil. Because you know that, for example, the love that you have for your son or daughter will make you hate whatever evil will damage them. Or the love that you have for your brother or sister in Christ will make you hate whatever evil will damage them. And so in your genuine love, Paul says, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Superglue yourselves then to what God calls good. And love each other with brotherly affection because genuine love is warmly affectionate and respectful in listening to one another, verse 10. And we love each other with zeal and loyalty Genuine love is patient towards each other and prayerful for each other. Verses 11 to 12. And we love each other with practical generosity. Genuine love means opening up your homes to each other. Verse 13. Serving up food and drink means breakfast to each other. And genuine love even loves those who are spiteful to you. Verse 14. William Tyndale once said, My weak brother has offended me. He has fallen. His weakness has overthrown him. It is not right by the law of love that I should now fall upon him and tread him down in the mire and utterly destroy him. 
but it is right by the law of love that I run to him and help him up again. And genuine love is empathetic, verse 15. So we rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So yes, I'll try to rejoice with my Arsenal supporting friends if they win the league this year and weep along with them if they don't. But in all seriousness, loving your neighbor is not an emotionless exercise. We are to be emotionally involved with each other through the highs and lows of life. And genuine love always seeks unity or harmony with each other, verse 16, and seeks to get alongside those you don't have tons in common with, perhaps, apart from Jesus. And then verses 17 to 21 are all about exercising self-control in our love towards our slanderers or enemies. Because in genuine love, we're free from vindictiveness towards our enemies. Because we trust God's justice. And we're free to bless our enemies because we know God's kindness. And so we aim to live peaceably with all. And it's really important to see here that this is not referring to the public sphere, but only to the private this is not a comment on the civil justice system. Far from it. God is most certainly pro-public justice. You only need to look so far as Romans 13.1 to see that. So what Paul is outlawing here is personal retribution, personal revenge, and so on. So genuine love means no vigilantes. So put away your capes now, all those stretchy suits and masks. Vigilantes like Batman, Spider-Man and the Arrow certainly have an appeal about them, don't they? They appeal to us because of our innate sense of justice. except God will fulfill those roles perfectly in the end. So leave room for God to be the superhero because you won't be one if you try to avenge yourself. You will just essentially become another villain. Because we'll always get carried away in our judgments 
and we don't see the full picture. Even career judges can't judge their own personal cases. But God is an impartial judge. He's completely fair. And he knows everything. And not taking personal revenge doesn't make you a coward or a wimp. I don't think anyone would call David a coward for refusing to take personal vengeance on King Saul, who was always hunting him down to kill him. David kept sparing his life, even though all around him were saying, do away with your enemy. But David would not lay a finger on him. And when he did want to take personal revenge on Nabal for his crimes against him, then he was rightly persuaded out of it by Abigail. And God did deal justly with both Saul and Nabal not long after those events. So rather than taking personal vengeance, we show kindness to our enemies. Just like it says in Romans 2 verse 4 that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. So as you give good things to your enemies, instead of repaying evil for evil, and Paul says they may feel the pain of shame, like burning coals, and come to a feeling of remorse by God's grace. And perhaps even their repentance and of putting their faith in God. Because if love is genuine, then our ultimate hope and prayer is not that God would give them greater vengeance than we ever could, but that your enemy might become God's friend and a true spiritual worshiper like you. Worship is not just offering the parts that are God-focused or self-focused. It's the parts that are others-focused too. And even though all of us will continue to fail to present our whole self in worship to God, Jesus never held back any part of himself for you. Jesus presented his whole body, his whole self, as a sacrifice for you. As a sacrifice for your sins. And to spare us from what our lack of whole body worship to him deserved. Jesus presented his body without a fight to the soldiers when he was betrayed in the garden. 
and he was willingly beaten and killed because he loved us. In order that we might receive that love and experience that 100% genuine love of his. At the crucifixion, his body and his soul received the hell your sins deserved for three whole hours. His body was a sacrifice unto death. To make you worthy to be presented by him to God. Justified. Blameless. Righteous. No sins attached. And now resurrected and ascended, Jesus has absolutely no limitations or weaknesses. Only strengths. He is the head of the church, his body. And he is slowly transforming his body, minute by minute, hour by hour, by the word and the spirit. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Romans 5.10 Jesus generously rejoiced with those who rejoiced. He genuinely wept with those who wept. And he doesn't give up on you when you let him down but helps you up again. So in our worship, according to Luther, whenever we sin and fall short, we flee to Christ the rock and we grip the rock. And when we continually do this over a whole lifetime, the goal is not that we quit sinning because that's for the life to come. The real goal, Luther says, is that by the end of our lives, our handprint is imprinted in the rock from having to grip it so often. And so as we grip onto Christ this morning, God truly accepts our flawed love and our imperfect worship because we are in Christ and he takes joy in our worship because our worship is in Christ, 
and not in our self-righteousness.